seat and uh, grab a Bible. If you don't have one with you, it'll really help you to be able to see one. You'll find one on uh, trolleys by the doors as you came in. And Jude is the second to last book in the Bible. So if you head to the back, you'll find Revelation at the end and then Jude one in. It's just a page, so it's easy to miss. Uh, If you're new with us this evening, you are very, very welcome. We'd love to get to know you better. Uh, Our website should help, dukestreetchurch.com. Do have a look around Uh, get a sense, a flavor of what we're about. And on the homepage there, click on the word hello, and um, uh, it'll give you a chance to give us some of your contact details, and uh, we'll start sending you a weekly email, uh, which you can unsubscribe from anytime you like. Let's read through uh, Jude's letter together before we look at the middle section. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together before we look together at Jude. Father, we thank you for your word, every word of it. I thank you that your love for us means sometimes saying very warm and encouraging things and sometimes means saying harder things to hear. Help us as we listen to you say perhaps harder things. Help us to listen. Help us to believe what you say and help us to respond to it in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a letter that we we may not want, but it's a letter, Jude, that we need. Uh, Last week, we heard Jude issue a rallying cry to the church. There it is in verse 3. Contend for the faith. And the reason we saw is there in verse 4. Dangerous people have infiltrated the church unnoticed. They have no interest in godliness, no interest in Jesus' authority, All they want to do is sin. And so in one sense, we have all the information we need from Jude on these people he's describing. All we now need from Jude, we might think, is to know how to respond. And Jude's going to get to that in verses 17 to 25, where he's going to tell us what it looks like to contend in a church. So in this letter, we might not want, but we certainly need, why do we need verses 5 through to 16? Now, why don't we jump straight from verse 4, the headline, to the, to the action in verse 17 and following? And the answer, I think, is so that by the time Jude spells out for us what contending looks like in that final third, we'll be absolutely determined to do it. Or to put it another way, he wants us not only to know the danger that these people represent to the church, but to feel it as well. You might have seen one of those uh, shocking adverts about the need to wear a seatbelt on TV. You know, think of the one, hard to watch, isn't it? Dad driving the car, he's not got a seatbelt on, and the kids are in the back, maybe they do, he doesn't. He, He takes his eye off the road, big truck. You know the rest. It's horrible to watch. It could be quite jarring if you're watching, I don't know, some sort of comedy, and that's the advert that comes up in the middle. It's horrible to watch. Why do we need it? Why do they, what do the advertisers or the people concerned about road safety think that we need it? Why don't they just say, you know, flash up, wear a seatbelt on the screen, and, and that's it? Well, because it's one thing to know that not wearing a seatbelt when you drive is dangerous. But to get you to wear one every time... You need to feel it. Jude wants this church to feel the danger that these people pose. And remember, we saw last week that they crept in unnoticed. They they didn't come in, in villain uniform. They didn't announce themselves at the front door as 
dangerous gospel deniers. It may well be that they were very friendly, they're very warm, they, they looked you in the eye, they asked you about your poorly parents, they took you out for coffee. They're not surely the sort of people against whom you would contend. So Jude gives us verses 5 to 16. It's hard to read, and really that is the point. Jude is aiming for your gut. Now look, before we dive in prof- um, properly, it's worth noting, isn't it, that this is an unusual passage. Twice, for example, Jude will quote or allude to uh, non-biblical sources. First, something about Moses from something called the Assumption of Moses or the Testimony of Moses, and then secondly, from the book of Enoch. I don't know whether you were scratching your heads at the Enoch stuff in verse 14, thinking, I don't remember reading that in the Bible. Well, you didn't. It's from a non-biblical source. And at first, that seems very odd to us. It might make us a bit uncomfortable. We think it undermines our doctrine of Scripture, but it doesn't. It isn't a problem. His, the, the fact is, his readers would have known those books very well, just as someone might today know Lord of the Rings. Okay, maybe that's not your book, but you know, think of a book that you know very well that isn't the Bible, right? Something you know, somebody, something that somebody could appeal to as an illustration. These are illustrations from Jude. He's doing what preachers do, They're taking something people know about and using it to illustrate a point that he wants them to not just know, but feel. He wants them to feel the problem. And what is the problem? Well, firstly, it is unrepentant ungodliness. Unrepentant ungodliness. You can't miss the word ungodly here, can you, in the letter? And particularly there in verse 15, you notice it? Coming over and over again in verse 15, four times there. Ungodly. These infiltrators were ungodly and proud of it. These are not people struggling with sin, battling with sin. These are people boasting about sin. Verse 16 Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters. And Jude paints their ungodliness in three colors. Firstly, self-indulgence. Jude loves grouping things into threes. You read through it again later on and look for all the threes that you see in Jude. He loves a triplet. And in verses 5 to 7, he gives three examples of God's judgment from the Old Testament. At first, verse Five, the example of the wilderness generation after the Exodus, who God destroyed for unbelief. And then the second example, angels who went beyond their proper authority and we're told are being kept in chains for judgment. And third, maybe the most famous examples of judgment in the whole of the Old Testament, known by Christians and non-Christians alike, the example of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah there in verse 7, deluged with heavenly sulfur. Now, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, the self-indulgence in view is spelled out for us. Sexual immorality, sensuality, unnatural desire. Now, sexual immorality is not a a phrase that we perhaps use very much anymore. We certainly don't hear it much, except maybe in mocking tones, it sounds old-fashioned. Today, we're more likely to hear phrases like sexual identity or sexual preference. And that's not surprising when we live in a culture that's chosen to ignore what sex is about and what it's for. Uh, In the Bible, the purpose of sex, we're told, is to bind together a marriage between one man and one woman for life. And that marriage isn't a, a relationship of preference or convenience, it's a holy covenant. It's also a glorious picture of the loving relationship between Christ and his church. And given, therefore, the glorious 
role that marriage has in God's gospel plan, sex becomes incredibly precious. God is not anti-sex. God created sex as a good and important gift to his world. And God has said that the right context for sex is within a heterosexual marriage. And the wrong context for sex is anywhere else. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah are famous as cities where God's good gift of sex was abused. Sodom, remember, was the place where Abraham's nephew Lot hosted two angels. And Sodom had become so depraved and sexually perverse that when the men of the city found out about Lot's guests, they rapped on Lot's door, demanding that he release the men so that they could sleep with him, with them. A place of notorious sexual immorality. Now, Jude's second example there in verse 6 is possibly, probably about sex as well. Now, those angels who exceeded their authority may well be the same as the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, which is in itself a strange episode where uh, these sons of God see how attractive the women of the world were and they took them as their wives. Now, we might think, well, that's a bit of a strange example for him to use, but it wouldn't have been strange for Jude's first readers. It would have landed with them, perhaps in a way that it doesn't land immediately with us. Now, you put this together, and it seems very likely, doesn't it, that these infiltrators were sinning sexually and boasting about it. They were the, the sexually liberated. You know, what, why are you guys, why are you Christians so down on sex? If two people love one another, why shouldn't they sleep together? Isn't God a God of love? And what about grace? You, you talk about grace all the time. Stop being so legalistic and try having sex. Now, can we see how contemporary this is? In fact, how contemporary this has always been in all of the years since Jude wrote it. If I talk about the Church of England, it's not because I don't think there aren't challenges in independent churches like ours. But you may be aware of the battles in the Church of England at the moment over issues of sexuality. And may, you may have heard church leaders reported as pronouncing that God now allows sex in virtually any loving and committed relationship. That seems to be where some of the Church of England leadership want to take things. And that point of view is presented as something progressive and forward-looking. But what they're saying today is no different, really, to what the infiltrators were saying in Jude's day. And what the infiltrators were saying then was no different to what went on in Sodom and Gomorrah way back in Genesis. So Jude points at these infiltrators. He points at Sodom and Gomorrah, the most no notoriously wicked cities in human history. And he says, look, see behind the smiles and the silver tongues and all the talk of progressiveness. It's the same. Self-indulgence and then... Self-rule. Self-rule. We saw this last week in verse 4, didn't we? Verse 4, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is a necessary move. If they're to indulge their sexual desires, they need to make themselves Lord of their own life. Now, by nature, look, we don't much like authority, do we? You don't have to answer this out loud. In fact, please don't. But how do you feel when you're driving through one of the 20-mile-an-hour zones around Richmond? Are you blessing the authorities for their wonderful wisdom? 
or are you raging at the snail's pace of the car in front? And as you watch the speedometer ticking over 25 and towards 30 and maybe beyond, whatever the speed you think that road ought to be is, who's your authority at that point? And the point is simply, our sinful natures don't like submitting to authority. And these infiltrators have made themselves Lord. Verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, who the glorious ones are is up for debate, but I suspect at least he's talking about angels. And the illustration Jude chooses in verse 9 is about angelic beings. He refers to a story in an extra-biblical book called The Assumption of Moses, where after Moses' death, the archangel Michael and the devil are disputing about what should happen to Moses' body. And the point he wants to make there is that even when the angel in question was the devil, a fallen angel, Michael still chooses his words carefully. He has such a respect for authority and for heavenly beings that he left the job of rebuking the devil to the Lord. Now, maybe these infiltrators were slandering angels somehow. We're not sure. Jude doesn't spell it out. I'm sure his readers knew. But whatever it was, it was another expression of dismissing authority. There is no one above me in the world. I can live as I like. And, of course, ultimately that means dethroning the Lord Jesus Christ. If they don't listen to King Jesus, who do they listen to? Verse 8, their dreams, relying on their dreams. So they've been, say, to the Bible study, they've heard the authoritative word of God on, say, I don't know, sex within marriage, given that sex is a big issue in Jude here. They've gone home and then they've had a dream where they indulged their sexual fantasies and they've decided, am I going to go with the Bible or am I going to go with the dream? I'm going to go with the dream. I know what the Bible says, but I've had this dream and I'd, I tell you, sleep with whoever you want. And again, it sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? Chase your dreams, follow your heart. Now, a church leader says, yeah, I, I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible said then, 2,000 years ago, remember, but I feel, I have a sense that, it, it may as well be, I, I had a dream last night. And the battle in the Church of England and the battle in lots of churches outside the Church of England is about authority, isn't it? Who's in charge? Who's in charge in my life? Who's in charge in the church, in the world? And the Christian knows that the answer to that is Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, one more feature of ungodliness to notice here, and that is self-gain. Self-gain. What motivates these infiltrators is self-gain. Jude gives us another trio, another triplet there in verse 11. And these people, he says, are like Cain, Balaam, Korah. And Cain, who killed his brother out of jealousy. Balaam, the mercenary prophet, who would say whatever people would pay him to say, and Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses. Now, all in their own way, rejected God's authority over them. And all, perhaps, led others astray, too. Well, that's very clear with Balaam and Korah. They led rebellions, or they, they led people astray. But there is a tradition, apparently, that Cain did the same. But the one detail spelled out for us here in verse 11, notice, is about Balaam. What does it say about Balaam? Verse 11, 
they've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. In other words, behind their kind eyes, maybe in their warm words, is an insatiable greed. Verse 16 says something similar, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They're out for what they can get. Or the picture there in verse 12, shepherds feeding themselves. The whole job of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. These people are entirely self-interested. They may claim to be on the side of the victim, claim that they're standing up for minorities within the church, but all they care about in the end is themselves. Self-indulgence, self-rule for self-gain. And to really make sure he's getting us in the gut, Jude gives us that flurry of pictures there in verse 12 to 13. He's saying, do you feel how serious this is? These people, they're like hidden reefs, verse 12, at your love feasts, at your church meals, that is. They're like submerged icebergs. They're waiting to rip a giant hole in your hull. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds. They, They promise refreshing rain on a parched desert, but the rain never comes. Fruitless trees, good for nothing but the axe. Wild waves of the sea constantly churning up shameful act after shameful act like foam at the beach. Wandering stars. You try to navigate by their star, but it keeps moving. It's unstable. And their destiny, verse 13, is the gloom of utter darkness forever. You hear what Jude is doing? He, he, he looks at us and he points at them and he says, can you feel it yet? Does it seem serious yet? Are you ready to contend yet? And if not because of the ugliness of unrepentant ungodliness, then surely because of its destiny. Unrepentant godliness leads, says Jude, to destruction. And this runs all the way through, doesn't it? All the way through the passage. The language is, is, is deliberately vivid. So verse 6, the angels of verse 6 are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Sodom and Gomorrah underwent a punishment of eternal fire. We've just read verse 13. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. And in verse 14 and 15, the Lord will come with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment. Can you hear what he's saying? Unrepentant ungodliness leads to eternal destruction in hell. One of the mottos of our age is something like, don't judge, isn't it? Don't judge. And sometimes that's what we need to hear. Uh, There are ways of being judgmental, as in uh, looking down on others for disagreeing with you or for, I don't know, preferring different music to you or not dressing like you, whatever it is, it's not good, is it? We don't want to be like that. But some things should be judged, shouldn't they? We do need courts of law and prisons. Some things deserve to be punished. Do you remember the reaction when Harvey Weinstein was exposed? Remember that when it hit the news? There was a clamor for justice to be done. And rightly so. Even in cultures that say don't judge, recognize then there should be judgment. There should be justice. Here in the UK, Jimmy Savile. Recently, Rolf Harris has died. We saw the same with him. We know that some things deserve to be punished. 
Of course, the problem with someone like Saville is that in the world's eyes, he escaped. He died before the truth came out. Jude is telling us here, when it comes to these infestations in the church, the unrepentant ungodly will not escape. Self-interested predatory infiltrators will be destroyed at the hands of the same Lord whose authority they rejected. We've gone through the the vivid examples of judgment in Jude, but the most chilling, surely, is the one in verse 5, don't you think? Isn't verse 5 a wake-up call? Who is it that the Lord destroys in verse 5? The same people he saved out of the land of Egypt. He saved a people, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Can you hear the warning? It isn't a warning to the Christian struggling with sin, battling with sin. And to that person, remembering how they became a Christian, God's past work in their life can be a wonderful encouragement. It should be. This is a warning to the person who lives however they like and who silences their conscience by saying, well, I I prayed a prayer as a teenager. Don't be fooled, says Jude. Unrepentant ungodliness leads to destruction. Well, it's heavy, isn't it? Isn't it heavy? Once again, not maybe what we want, but it is what we need. And we need it both as a challenge, don't we, and as an encouragement. The the challenge is, of course, the challenge we saw last week. We must contend for the faith, both for what the gospel is a message of Jesus not only as Savior, but as our Lord as well, with the authority to tell us how we ought to live and think. And to contend for what the grace of the gospel produces in a person's life, a desire for godliness and a lifestyle of repentance when we fail, which, of course, we do. Now, I'm not aware that we have infiltrators in our church in quite the way this church did, apparently. But then it is probably easier to infiltrate churches today with false teaching and the lifestyle it produces. And the internet, for example, contains every kind of false teacher going. If you want to do something the Bible forbids, you'll always be able to find a Bible teacher online who will give you permission to do it. Most of us in our homes have a sort of a propaganda machine, often as the focus of the living room, filled with programs that encourage us to go soft on sin and ungodliness, and often featuring characters who have, for example, sex with whoever they want without any consequences. Now, the application of this sermon is not to throw out our TVs, but I think Jude would want us to think carefully about what effect that might have on our view of ungodliness, and he'd want us to contend for our own sake in case in the future someone has to warn people about us the way Jude warns them about these creeping infiltrators. And for the sake of each other, and for the sake of our children, being brought up in a deeply ungodly culture that has little time for the authority of Jesus. And for our brothers and sisters here in our church family. Now across churches like ours, are Christians fighting bravely against sexual temptation. Some are fighting heterosexual temptation, some are fighting homosexual temptation. 
and nothing dishonors their sacrifice more than for church leaders to say that they've been wasting their time pursuing sexual purity. How that undermines their discipleship as they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. When we insist on submitting to Scripture on sex and everything else too, we're contending for them. We're contending for us. We're contending and honoring their cross-carrying devotion to Jesus. For the sake of each other, contend for the faith. That's the challenge. And then there is an encouragement here too, isn't there? If you look carefully, it might not sound like an encouraging passage. But here's the encouragement surely here that for all of our contending, the one who will ultimately contend with these proud, greedy, dangerous, false teaching, false living infiltrators is the Lord. But when the church is infested, he knows what to do. I recently had the, the joy of a fairly mild moth infestation in the flat. Apparently, Richmond is popular with moths. Wonderfully, they were hiding under the bed in the dark. It's lovely, isn't it? And I started noticing them on the walls. If you've had moths in your home in this area, let's compare notes afterwards. Uh, they're not pleasant, suffice to say, and I'm afraid they had to go. I'm not one for pets anyway, let alone moths. Well, what to do? Well, insect lovers turn away now because Robert Dias over the road sells something called Moth Killer. Can you guess what it does? And let me tell you, it works. One spray and Mr. Moth ceases to be. It turns out moths are no match for Moth Killer. That's a silly picture. But the point in Jude is this. Unrepentant, ungodly, pseudo-teachers who infiltrate the church, much as they may distress us and make us angry for the danger they do our brothers and sisters, they are no match for the Lord. He knows how to bring justice. They may win for a while. They may even recruit some to their cause. But they will lose in the end. Now, picking a fight with the church means picking a fight with, what did we learn last week? The called, the beloved, the kept. It means picking a fight with the Lord God Almighty. And no one who picks a fight with him will win in the end. We're going to spend a few moments in prayer. Uh, on our own, we'll be led in prayer later on in the service, but a time to reflect, to think, to respond in silent prayer to God. A chance to pray, perhaps, for protection against those who would infiltrate God's church. For strength for us as we look to live godly lives under Christ's authority. And a prayer, too, for those in danger of being dragged away from the faith. A moment in prayer.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we find full and free forgiveness as we were thinking about this morning. We thank you that in him our ungodliness is forgiven. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be those who contend for godliness, first of all in our own lives. We pray that you'd help us to contend for the faith and the godliness it produces in our church family. And we pray that you would give courage to those battling at the moment. And Father, we pray that you would restrain the hand of those who would infiltrate churches. We pray that those in leadership positions who want to change your word on these critical issues would be stopped. We pray that you would protect your people, protect the called, the beloved, and the kept. And may your mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.